Chapter Two of the Seats of the Mighty by Gilbert Parker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. What fools said Doltaire presently to burn the bread and oven too, if only they were less honest in a world of rogues. Poor moles, coming nearer. We saw that Lafarpon itself was safe, but one warehouse was doomed and another threatened. The streets were full of people, and thousands of excited peasants, laborers, and sailors were shouting, Down with the palace! Down with Bigot! We came upon the scene at the most critical moment. None of the governor's soldiers were in sight, but up the heights we could hear the steady tramp of General Montcalm's infantry as they came on. Where were Bigot's men? There was a handful, one company, drawn up before La Friponne, idly leaning on their muskets, seeing the great granary burn, and watching La Friponne threatened by the mad crowd and the fire. There was not a soldier before the intendant's palace, not a light in any window. What is this weird trick of Bigot's? said Dautier, musing. The governor, we knew, had been out of the city that day. But where was Bigot? At a word from Doltaire, we pushed forwards towards the palace, the soldiers keeping me in their midst. We were not a hundred feet from the great steps when two gates from the right suddenly swung open, and a carriage rolled out swiftly and dashed down into the crowd. I recognized the coachman first, Bigot's, an old one-eyed soldier of surpassing nerve, and devoted to his master. The crowd parted right and left. Suddenly the carriage stopped, and Bigot stood up, folding his arms, and glancing round with a disdainful smile without speaking a word. He carried a paper in one hand. Here were at least two thousand armed and unarmed peasants, sick with misery and oppression, in the presence of their undefended tyrant one shot one blow of a stone one stroke of a knife to the end of a shameless pillage but no hand was raised to do the deed the roar of voices subsided he waited for it and silence was broken only by the crackle of the burning building the tromp of montcalm's soldiers in mountain street and the tolling of the cathedral bell i thought it strange that almost as bigot came out the wild clanging gave place to a cheerful peal. After standing a moment, looking round him, his eye resting on Dautier and myself, we were but a little distance from him, Bigot said in a loud voice, What do you want with me? Do you think I may be moved by threats? Do you punish me by burning your own food? which, when the English are at our doors, is your only hope? Fools! How easily could I turn my cannon and my men upon you? You think to frighten me. Who do you think I am? A Bostonais or an Englishman? You revolutionists! Tish! You are wild dogs without a leader. You want one that you can trust. You want no coward but one who fears you not at your wildest. Well, 
I will be your leader. I do not fear you, and I do not love you. For how have you deserved my love? By ingratitude and aspersion? Who has the king's favor? Francois Bigot. Who has the ear of the Grand Marquis? Francois Bigot. Who stands firm while others tremble, lest their power pass tomorrow? Francois Bigot. Who else dare invite revolution, this danger? His hand sweeping to the flames. Who but Francois Bigot? He paused for a moment, and looking up to the leader of Montcalm's soldiers on the heights, waved him back. Then he continued, And today, when I am ready to give you great news, you play the mad dog's game. You destroy what I had meant to give you in our hour of danger when those English came. I made you suffer a little, that you might live then, only today, because of our great and glorious victory. He paused again. The peal of bells became louder. Far up on the heights we heard the calling of bugles and the beating of drums. And now I saw the whole large plan, the deep dramatic scheme. He had withdrew the news of the victory that he might announce it when it would most turn to his own glory. Perhaps he had not counted on the burning of the warehouse, but this would tell now in his favor. He was not a large man, but he drew himself up with dignity, and continued in a contemptuous tone. Because of our splendid victory, I design to tell you all my plans, and pitying your trouble, divide among you at the smallest price that all might pay the corn which now goes to feed the stars. At that moment someone from the heights above called out shrilly, What lies in that paper, Francois Bigot? I looked up, as did the crowd. A woman stood upon a point of the great rock, a red robe hanging on her, her hair free over her shoulders, her finger pointing at the intendant. Bigu only glanced up, then smoothed out the paper. He said to the people in a clear but less steady voice, for I could see that the woman had disturbed him. Go pray to be forgiven for your insolence and folly. His most Christian majesty is triumphant upon the Ohio. The English have been killed in thousands, and their general with them. Do you not hear the joy bells in the church of Our Lady of the Victories? And more, listen! There burst from the heights on the other side a cannon shot, and then another, and another. There was a great commotion, and many ran to Bigu's carriage, reached in to touch his hand, and called down blessings on him. See that you save the other granaries, he urged, adding with a sneer, And forget not to bless La Frippin, 
in your prayers. It was a clever piece of acting. Presently, from the heights above, came the woman's voice again, so piercing that the crowd turned to her. Francois Bigot is a liar and a traitor, she cried. Beware of Francois Bigot. God has cast him out. A dark look came upon Bigot's face, but presently he turned and gave a sign to someone near the palace. The doors of the courtyard flew open, and out came squad after squad of soldiers. In a moment, they, with the people, were busy carrying water to pour upon the side of the endangered warehouse. Fortunately, the wind was with them, else it and the palace also would have been burned that night. The intendant still stood in his carriage, watching and listening to the cheers of the people. At last he beckoned to Doltaire and to me. We both went over. Doltaire, we looked for you at dinner, he said. Was Captain Moray, nodding towards me, lost among the petticoats? He knows the trick of cup and saucer. Between the sip and click, he sucked in secrets from our garrison. A spy where had been a soldier, as we thought. You once wore a sword, Captain Moray, eh? If the governor would grant me leave, I would not only wear, but use one. Your Excellency knows well where, said I. Large speaking, Captain Moray. They do that in Virginia, I am told. In Gascony there's quiet, your Excellency. Dautier laughed outright, for it was said that Bigou, in his cultish days, had a shrewish Gascon wife, whom he took leave to send to heaven before her time. I saw the intendant's mouth twitch angrily. Come, you have a tongue. We'll see if you have a stomach. You've languished with the girls. You shall have your chance to drink with Francois Bigot. Now, if you dare, when we have drunk to the first cock-crow, should you still be on your feet, you'll fight someone among us, first giving ample cause. I hope, Your Excellency, I replied with a touch of vanity, I have still some stomach and a wrist. I will drink to cock-crow, if you will. And if my sword prove the stronger, what? There's the point, he said. Your Englishman loves not fighting for fighting's sake, Doltaire. He must have bonbons for it. Well, see, if your sword and stomach prove the stronger, you shall go your ways to where you will. Voila! If I could but have seen a bare portion of the craftiness of this pair of devil's artisans, they both had ends to serve in working ill towards me, and neither was content that I should be shut away in the citadel and no more. There was a deeper game playing. I give them their due, the trap was skilful, and in those times, with great things at stake, strategy took the place of open fighting here and there. For Bigou, I was to be the weapon against another, for Doltaire against myself. What a gall they must have thought me! 
I might have known that, with my lost papers on the way to France, they must hold me tight here till I had been tried, nor permit me to escape. But I was sick of doing nothing, thinking with horror on a long winter in the citadel, and I caught at least the straw of freedom. Captain Moray will like to spend a couple of hours at his lodgings before he joins us at the palace, the intendant said, and with a nod to me he turned to his coachman. The horses wheeled, and in a moment the great doors opened, and he had passed inside to applause, though here and there among the crowd was heard a hiss, for the scarlet woman had made an impression. The intendant's men essayed to trace these noises, but found no one. Looking again to the heights, I saw that the woman had gone. Doltier noted my glance and the inquiry in my face, and he said, Some bad fighting hours with the intendant at Chateau Bigot, and then a fever, bringing a kind of madness, so the story creeps about, as told by Bigot's enemies. Just at this point I felt a man hustle me as he passed. One of the soldiers made a thrust at him, and he turned round. I caught his eye, and it flashed something to me. It was Vuban the barber, who had shaved me every day for months when I first came, while my arm was stiff from a wound gut fighting the French on the Ohio. It was quite a year since I had met him, and I was struck by the change in his face. It had grown much older. Its roundness was gone. We had had many a talk together, he helping me with French, I listening to the tales of his early life in France, and to the later tale of a humble love, and of the home which he was fitting up for his Matilda, a peasant girl of much beauty, I was told, but whom I had never seen. I remembered at that moment, as he stood in the crowd looking at me, the piles of linen which he had bought at St. Anne de Beaupre and the silver pitcher which his grandfather had got him from the Duke de Valois for an act of merit. Many a time we had discussed the pitcher and the deed, and fingered the linen, now talking in French, now in English, for in France, years before, he had been a valet to an English officer at King Louis's court. But my surprise had been great when I learned that this English gentleman was no other than the best friend I ever had next to my parents and my grandfather vubo was bound to sir john godric by as strong ties of affection as i what was more by a secret letter i had sent to george washington who was then as good a briton as myself i had been able to have my barber's young brother a prisoner of war set free i felt that he had something to say to me but he turned away and disappeared among the crowd. I might have had some clue if I had known that he had been crouched behind the intendant's carriage while I was being bidden to the supper. I did not guess then that there was anything between him and the scarlet woman who railed at Bigu. In a little while I was at my lodgings, soldiers posted at my door and one in my room. Dautier gone to his own quarters, promising to call me within two hours. There was little for me to do but to put in a bag the fewest necessaries, to roll up my heavy cloak, to stow safely my pipes and two goodly packets of tobacco, which were to be my chiefest solace for many a long day, 
and to write some letters one to governor dinwiddie one to george washington and one to my partner in virginia telling them my fresh misfortunes and begging them to send me money which however useless in my captivity would be important in my fight for life and freedom i did not write intimately of my state for i was not sure my letters would ever pass outside quebec there were only two men i could trust to do the thing one was a fellow-countryman clark a ship carpenter who to save his neck and to spare his wife and child had turned catholic but who hated all frenchmen barbarously at heart remembering two of his bands butchered before his eyes the other was voban i knew that though voban might not act he would not betray me but how to reach either of them it was clear that i must bide my chances one other letter i wrote brief but vital in which i begged the sweetest girl in the world not to have uneasiness because of me that i trusted to my star and to my innocence to convince my judges and begging her if she could to send me a line at the citadel i told her i knew well how hard it would be for her mother and her father would not now look upon my love with favor but i trusted all to time and providence i sealed my letters put them in my pocket and sat down to smoke and think while i waited for dautiere to the soldier on duty whom i did not notice at first i now offered a pipe and a glass of wine which he accepted rather gruffly but enjoyed if i might judge by his devotion to them by and by without any relevancy at all he said abruptly if a little sooner she had come oh for a moment i could not think what he meant but soon i saw the palace would have been burnt if the girl in scarlet had come sooner eh i asked she would have urged the people on and beagle burnt too maybe he answered fire and death eh i offered him another pipeful of tobacco he looked doubtful but accepted oh and that vauban he would have had his hand in he growled i began to get more light she was shut up as chateau bigot hand of iron and lock of steel who knows the rest but vauban was for always he added presently the thing was clear the scarlet woman was matilda so here was the end of voubeau's little romance of the fine linen from st anne de beaupre and the silver pitcher for the wedding wine i saw or felt that in voubeau i might find now a confederate if i put my hard case on bigot's shoulders i can't see why she stayed with bigot i said tentatively break the dog's leg he can't go hunting bones me no holy how stupid are you english why doesn't the intendant lock her up now she's dangerous to him you remember what she said tonnerre you shall see to-morrow he answered now all the sheep go bleating with the bell 
Pigo, Pigo, Pigo. There is nothing but Pigo. But, Pish, Baudrille, the governor, is a great man, and Montcalm, oh, son of Mohammed, you shall see. Now they dance to Pigo's whistling. You will lock her safe enough to-morrow. Let someone steps in to help her. Before to-night she never spoke of him before the world. But the poor daft thing, going about all sad and wild. She missed her chance to-night. Oh! Why are you not with Montcalm, soldiers? I asked. You like him better. I was with him, but my time was out, and I left him for Bigo. Pish! I left him for Bigo, for the militia. He raised his thumb to his nose, and spread out his fingers. Again light dawned on me. He was still with the governor, in all fact, though soldiering for Bigo, a sort of watch upon the intendant. I saw my chance. If I could but induce this fellow to fetch me Vubo, there was yet an hour before I was to go to the intendant's. I called up what looks of candor were possible to me, and told him bluntly that I wished Vubo to bear a letter for me to Signero Duvarnes. At that he cocked his ear and shook his bushy head, fiercely stroking his moustaches. I knew that I should stake something if I said it was a letter for Mademoiselle Duvarney, but I knew also that if he was still the governor's man in Bigu's pay, he would understand the seigneur's relations with the governor, and a woman in the case with a soldier, that would count for something. So I said it was for her. Besides, I had no other resource but to make a friend among my enemies if I could, while yet there was a chance. It was like a load lifted from me when I saw his mouth and his eyes opened wide in a big soundless laugh, which came to an end with a voiceless aho. I gave him another tumbler of wine. Before he took it, he made a wide mouth at me again, and slapped his leg. After drinking, he said, Pum! What good! They are going to hang you for a spy. That rope's not ready yet. I answered. I'll tie a pretty knot in another string first, I trust. Damned if you haven't spirit, said he. That Seigneur Duvigny, I know him, and I know his son, the ensign. Oh, what saltpeter is he? And the mademoiselle, excellent, excellent, and a face, such a face and a seat like leeches in the saddle. And you, a British officer, mewed up to kick your heels to gallows day. So droll, my dear. But will you fetch Vubo? I asked. To trim your ear against the zappa to-night, eh? Like that? As he spoke, he puffed out his red cheeks with wide boy-like eyes, burst his lips in another soundless laugh, and laid a finger beside his nose. His marvellous innocence of look and his peasant openness hid, I saw great shrewdness and intelligence. An admiral man for Vaudreuil's purpose. 
as admirable for mine i knew well that if i had tried to bribe him he would have scouted me or if i had made a motion for escape he would have shot me off-hand but a lady that appealed to him and that she was signora duvarney's daughter did the rest yes yes said i one must be well appointed in soul and body when one sups with his excellency and monsieur Dottier. limed inside and choked outside he retorted gleefully but monsieur Dottier needs no lime for he has no soul no paisant the good god didn't make him the devil laughed and that laugh grew into monsieur Dottier. but brave no kicking pulse is in his body you will send for vubo now i asked softly he was leaning against the door as he spoke he reached and put the tumbler on a shelf then turned and opened the door his face all altered to a grimness he called and on the soldier coming he blurted out in scorn here's his english captain can't go to zappa without vauban shears to snip him go fetch him for i'd rather hear a calf in a barnyard than this wing wanging for monsieur vauban he mocked my accent in the last two words so that the soldier grinned and at once started away then he shut the door and turned to me again and said more seriously how long have we before monsieur come meaning doltier at least an hour said i good he rejoined and then he smoked while i sat thinking it was near an hour before we heard footsteps outside then came a knock and vubo was shown in quick monsieur he said monsieur is almost at our heels this letter said i to mademoiselle duvarney and i handed four hers and those to governor dinwiddie to mr washington and to my partner he quickly put them in his coat nodding the soldier i have not yet mentioned his name gabo did not know that more than one passed into vubo's hands off with your coat monsieur said vubo whipping out his shears tossing his cap aside and rolling down his apron monsieur is here i had off my coat was in a chair in a twinkling and he was clipping softly at me as doltier's hand turned the handle of the door beware to-night vubo whispered come to me in the prison said i remember your brother his lips twitched monsieur i will if i can this he said in my ear as doltier entered and came forward upon my life these english gallants they go to prison curled and musked by vauban vauban a name from the court of the king and it garnishes a barber who called you vauban my mother with the cure's help monsieur doltier paused with a pinch of snuff at his nose and replied lazily i did not say who called you vauban vauban but who called you here vauban i spoke up testily then of purpose what would you have monsieur the citadel has better butchers than barbers i sent for him he shrugged his shoulders and came over to vubo 
turn round my vauban he said vauban and such a figure a knee a back like that then while my heart stood still he put forth a finger and touched the barber on the chest if he should touch the letters i was ready to seize them but would that save them twice thrice the finger prodded vubo's breast as if to add an emphasis to his words in quebec you are misplaced monsieur le vauban once a wasp got into a honeycomb and died i knew he was hinting at the barber's resentment of the poor matilda's fate something strange and devilish leapt into the man's eyes and he broke out bitterly a honey-bee got into a nest of wasps and died i thought of the scarlet woman on the hill vubo looked for a moment as if he might do some wild thing his spirit his devilry pleased Dautier, and he laughed who would have thought our vauban had such wit the trade of barber is double-edged razors should be in fashion at versailles then he sat down while vubo made a pretty show of touching off my person a few minutes passed so in which the pealing of the bells the shouting of the people the beating of the drums and the calling of the bugles came to us clearly a half hour afterwards on our way to the attendant's palace we heard the benedictus chanted in the church of the recollects as we passed hundreds kneeling outside and responding to the chant sung within At the corner of a building which we passed, a little way from the crowd, I saw a solitary cloaked figure. The words of the chant following us, I could hear distinctly. And then, from the shadowed corner came in a high, melancholy voice of words, To give light to them that sit in darkness, and in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. Looking closer, I saw it was Matilda, Dautier smiled as I turned and begged a moment's time to speak to her. To pray with the lost angel, and sup with the intendant, all in one night. A liberal taste, monsieur. But who shall stay the good Samaritan? They stood a little distance away, and I went over to her and said, Mademoiselle Matilda, do you not know me? Her abstracted eye fired up as there ran to her brain some little sprite out of the house of memory and told her who i was there were two lovers in the world she said the mother of god forgot them and the devil came i am the scarlet woman she went on 
I made this red robe from the curtains of hell. Poor soul! My own trouble seemed then as a speck among the stars to hers. I took her hand and held it, saying again, Do you not know me? Think, Matilda. I was not sure that she had ever seen me to know me, but I thought it possible, for, as a hostage, I had been much noticed in Quebec, and Vubo had no doubt pointed me out to her. Light leapt from her black eye, and then she said, putting her finger on her lips, Tell all the lovers to hide. I have seen a hundred Francois Bigots. I looked at her, saying nothing, and knew not what to say. Presently her eye steadied to mine, and her intellect rallied. You are a prisoner, too, she said. But they will not kill you. They will keep you till the ring of fire grows in your head, and then you will make your scarlet robe and go out. But you will never find it, never. God hid first, and then it hides. It hides that which you lost. It hides, and you cannot find it again. You go hunting, hunting, but you cannot find it. My heart was pinched with pain. I understood her. She did not know her lover now at all. If Alix and her mother at the manor could but care for her, I thought. But alas, what could I do? It were useless to ask her to go to the manor. She would not understand. Perhaps there come to the disordered mind flashes of insight, illuminations and divinations, greater than are given to the sane. For she suddenly said in a whisper, touching me with a nervous finger, I will go and tell her where to hide. They shall not find her. I know the woodpath to the manor. Hush, she shall own all I have except the scarlet robe. She showed me where the May apples grew. Go. She pushed me gently away. Go to your prison and pray to God. But you cannot kill Francois Bigot. He is a devil. Then she thrust into my hands a little wooden cross which she took from many others at her girdle. If you wear that, the ring of fire will not grow, she said. I will go by the woodpath and give her one too. She shall live with me. I will spread the cedar branches and stir the fire. She shall be safe. Hush! Go, go softly, for their wicked eyes are everywhere, the werewolves. She put her fingers on my lips for an instant, and then, turning, stole softly away towards the St. Charles River. Dautier's mockery brought me back to myself. So much for the beads of the adult, 
now for the bowls of sinful man. End of chapter 2